When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains light spoilers for Ted Lasso, as well as some adult themes and salty language. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm David Sims. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic. And I'm joined today by two other staff writers on our culture team, Sophie Gilbert. Hello. Hi. And Megan Garber. Hi. How's everyone doing? Pretty good. Good. We're here to talk about Apple TV Plus. I, you know, am I supposed to really one of the most powerful companies in the universe, and their network has a plus in it? I just, you know, Apple's soccer sitcom <laughs> Ted Lasso. It's in its second season. It just was named. The Outstanding Comedy Series by the Emmys. It won a bunch of Emmys. It didn't win all of them, but it won most of them. But part of why I wanted to talk about Ted Lasso, besides it being a great, very interesting show, is that it's kind of a strange phenomenon. It's a strange moment in TV. We've got all these new streamers, uh, a lot of them big tech company-backed streamers, splitting up audiences. There's not a lot of macro culture anymore there's not a lot of crossover hits you know water cooler television that everybody watches at the same time ted lasso has been a bit of an outlier i think it has resonated it has found a real audience i assume it's viewing numbers are not the kind of numbers that you know three's company pulled in in the late 70s (laughs) but still like i do feel like a lot of people in my life watch ted lasso and chat about it right sophie yeah it's interesting it seems to be the apple show that caught Fire. I think when when Apple launched the morning show was the show with the big fanfare, and right. you know there was big C, stars. which seemed to mostly be a, a joke, and Dickinson, which people really loved, which was kind of a modern infused take on the life of the poet Emily Dickinson. And then Tad Lasso came out of nowhere, almost, or it felt like it did to me. It was adapted from a 2013 NBC Sports ad. <laughs> yep. <laughs> hey, how you doing? This is Ted Lasso. I'm the new head coach of the Tottenham. Hot Spurs, and uh, I'd like to talk to the Queen, please. Jason Sudeikis played an American coach who knew nothing about football slash soccer. Football is football, no matter where you play it. You got grass, you got cleats, and you got helmets with masks on them. This ad was to promote the fact that Premier League Soccer was now playing on NBC. And he comes over and he knows absolutely nothing about the game or how it works. <laughs> Do we have any goals this season? Absolutely. We're going to win a lot of games. We're going to get in the playoffs. No playoffs. There's no playoffs. Again, my job just got a lot easier. Ties and no playoffs. Why do you even do this? <laughs> and so this this concept, this very uh, loose framing of an ad was adapted actually surprisingly against all the odds into the heartwarming, feel-good show that we have in front of us now. And it took off, I think, because people really loved its ethos. It's a feel-good, optimistic, heartwarming sports narrative in season one, certainly. I think Jezebel had a story about how it's the only positive example of a locker room in sports history. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I do love a locker room. Smells like potential. 
Ted is a coach and his his ethos, you know, he writes it on a poster and sticks it up above his office. It's the word believe. And he is an optimist. And he think, he doesn't seem to care so much about the winning and the losing side of sports. He just wants his team to be the best versions of themselves that they can be. Success is not about the wins and losses. It's about helping these young fellas be the best versions of themselves on and off the field. So much of its initial appeal was you turn it on expecting a sports narrative you're familiar with and the ways it defies that narrative. Ted Lasso has been a pandemic comfort watch in my household. My wife, I believe, watched the first season through three different times. Like when we watched it together and then two more times and just found it something that she delighted in having on in the background. Part of the thing with this show, like you say, Apple TV had these gargantuan sized, very expensive projects and then kind of tucked away was this sort of little comedy and you turn it on and you're like, oh, well, this isn't what I expect. And I feel like with whereas with season two, now it's like Ted Lasso. Where, you know, has he redefined the American man? Like, you know, do we are we all nice now because of Ted? Do we have to be mean again? Should we be mean to Ted? Like or someone else? What do you got, uh, Megan? What do you think of this show? Was this like a pandemic comfort watch? That you know, wh- when did you guys come around to Ted Lasso? Yeah, I think very similar um, to you both. I'd heard about the premise of the show. You know, this this clueless American, you know, comes to the UK to coach soccer, and he he yeah, the whole thing. Like, um, it did not seem, based on the premise, very appealing to me. It seemed like something I would actively not want to watch. I don't really watch football um, in the British sense, really at all. But my partner kept saying, like, I promise, just give it a chance, right. and I think you will love it. And that's definitely how I came around to it. And like you both said, I think there's something so powerful about the show's message, you know, and this is definitely a show with a message. I think there's something actually, like, quietly genius about making this show that is about team sports that is actually not about the sport at all, right? Like, the sport functions in this show so much like a metaphor, you know, and it becomes a way for the show to sort of talk about these very like fundamental questions of how the individual should act uh, with the collective and, you know, how individuality uh, becomes either rugged or toxic and where the lines are between those two things. And, you know, sort of what do we owe to each other as individuals, but also as fundamentally teammates? Like those are the questions that sort of undergird public policy that undergird our economic systems that, you know, inflect our education system. Jamie, I think that you might be so sure that you're one in a million that sometimes you forget that out there you're just one of 11. If you just figure out some way to turn that me into us, sky's the limit for you. I mean, those are sort of the fundamental questions of everything, really. And this show is getting at those, I think, in this very quiet, subtle, but very powerful way. And I think once I sort of realized that it was operating on that level, it, it brought me around to it. And and I think, too, just that idea of optimism and of saying at the same time, which is, I think, very connected to the show's notion of optimism, that we can never do anything on our own. We always are going to need some kind of team. And I think, you know, I watched the show when the mask mandates <laughs> were a debate in American culture and people were mm-hmm. refusing to, you know, to act in any way that might be selfless, you know, and, and you just hear story after story about, you know, I'm not going to do something that will help other people because freedom, you know, and and I think to watch a show like this, especially at a moment like that, where it was very easy to feel despair about our ability to just be human to each other. The show just felt kind of revelatory in that way. Not to spoil too much about season one, but season (laughs) one has aired. You know, one of the big moments of the whole show 
is that the sort of ostensible he's not a villain exactly but the more you know jockey individualistic character jamie tart <laughs> who's on the team and then eventually leaves the team defeats them by using ted's you know collective philosophy you know by making the extra pass and by by understanding that he's part of a team right like that you know there's like this sort of clever irony to that i i you know I, i'm a big fan of season one of ted lasso i think ted lasso season one is one of the most derivative tropey mm-hmm. <laughs> seasons of television i've ever it seen is. and that doesn't mean that sounds negative but it, it's not like you have every trope sports movie tv show cliche in the whole fictional universe you have the fish out of water you have like the love triangle you have the misunderstood villain like right out of a Stephen right. King novel who bullies people because he has a mean father who's horrible to him that's Jamie Todd who you were just talking about David there's just every single yeah you know Roy cliche. Kent right the cynic who's <laughs> right, got a with heart, a heart of, gold, of gold yeah right, you know, you know Nathan same with the underdog who's gonna you know become a coach in his own right you have Keely played by Juno Temple. Keely, right. You know, don't judge her by her cover. Right. Kind of the bimbo with a heart of gold. Everyone has a heart of gold in this show. Even when when they don't, they do eventually. Well, and the true villain of the first season is Rebecca Welton, who's played by Hannah Waddingham, who is the sort of, uh, she's the evil owner from Major League, if people have seen Major League. See, my ex-husband truly loved only one thing his entire life, this club. And Ted Lasso is going to help me burn it to the ground. She wants to run the team into the ground because she hates her ex-husband who left her the team. And then it turns out she has a heart of gold, too. You know, like Ted Lasso's just in there. He's handing out hearts of gold to everyone, even if they don't have one. Totally. And I think there's something so simple and basic, but I think so powerful about, I mean, just the premise of taking the caricature and complicating it, right? Like, because that's that's how life should work, right? Like, that's, in a way, I mean, you know, this show is always talked about in terms of kindness. But I think what kindness means in this show, at least, is curiosity, right? Like Ted's defining characteristic is that he's curious about other people. And I think there's a way that the show kind of trains us to do that too, to, to sort of understand that someone might be presented as a, as a caricature, as a stereotype, but they are go- we are going to learn more about them, you know, who even if they're a side character, we're going to learn that they are so much more than they seem. And sometimes that's heart of gold, mostly it's heart of gold, but mm-hmm. it can also be, I mean, with someone like Nate, right? Like there's so much happening under the surface of what Nate presents as a character, right? And I think that's just true for so many of the characters here. It has the classic sports narrative arc. They come together as a team. They achieve triumph. Yada, yada. But it lacks, you know, the sort of Hoosiers thing that, you know, the, the sort of <laughs> what we expect, this sort of tough coach who comes in and whips everyone into shape, not by being cruel exactly, but certainly by being rigid, imposing discipline, you know, turning boys into men, right? You know, the sort of classic <laughs> thing we expect from a coach. And Ted is achieving the same things in season one without the same uh, methods. And there is something kind of enthralling to that. And I guess mm-hmm. that's what people talk about with niceness. You know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's a goldfish. It's got a 10 second memory. Be a goldfish, Sam. Just watching something that initially seems like, oh, this guy's just kind of guileless. And then. <laughs> a few episodes in, you start to realize, like, oh, no, there's strategy at work here. That's exciting in television, to watch something unfold that you didn't realize was 
planned out. You know, I feel like so much of the Ted Lasso discourse is the niceness discourse, right? That was what sort of emerged from season one was everyone being like, you won't believe it, a show about a nice person, <laughs> which I understood because, of course, the antihero became such a dominant protagonist in like 21st century American television. And like that was so interesting. But it's not like shows haven't had nice people in them. You know, the whole Mike Schur thing is niceness. Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, they're basically all about people being nice to each other. Right, uh, Leslie Nopix. Right. It's not completely revolutionary for that to be structurally important to a show. But like, for whatever reason, that just sort of became the wider political debate around Ted Lasso. But season two has been trying to peel things back and, right, like investigate how Ted's niceness and this sort of folksy American niceness, you know, is a bit of a shield and is covering up all kinds of internal trauma with him. What do you guys make of this sort of big arc? I found it really interesting because so much of season one is about proposing niceness as a counter to toxic masculinity, right? Like you have the sports setting, which is one of the most toxically masculine historically mm. venues of all time. You have Ted coming in, diffusing all of that with his ethos. He's the one, coach. We're going to make an impact here. First domino needs to fall right inside that man's heart. You have these caricatures, Roy Kent and Jamie Tart, and all the ways in which Ted kind of breaks them down and, and exposes them and promotes Nate. So you're sort of thinking about niceness by itself and, and what it means. And then in season two, it becomes clear that niceness is actually a different kind of expression of toxic masculinity for Ted Lasso. It is his defense mechanism that he uses to deflect things as much as anything else. And niceness, I think, yes, is still who he is, but it's also become something that he has weaponized over the years to protect himself and protect others. Yeah. This made me think a lot about the American sort of happiness industrial complex, you know, and there's, <laughs> such a, there's such a sense, I think, you know, really throughout American history, but, you know, definitely right now in, in terms of, you know, influencer culture and wellness culture, you know, there's this ongoing debate about, like, can we be in charge of our own happiness? Do we look outside of ourselves? Do we, you know, how do we actually find happiness? Is happiness something that can be bought? Is it something that can be, you know, kind of willed into effect? I'm reading this book right now, um, William Leach's Land of Desire, about the history of consumerism in America, which I would really recommend. It's really good. But I mention it because it has a whole section on the mind cure movement uh, in early America and this power of positive thinking stuff. And, you know, just so much much of our culture right now is sort of based in the notion that you can cure your own mind, you know, that mm. if you want happiness enough, you can achieve it. And I think in some ways, I mean, Ted is such a sort of faith-based person that I think part of his faith in season two kind of transfers over from faith about the team's ability to win, faith in other people, to sort of faith in himself to heal himself, which is, I think, you know, a message that a lot of Americans are given that, you know, whatever your circumstances, you know, whatever the structural forces that are weighing down on you, ultimately it's on you to fix yourself, you know? And I think Ted is sort of embodying that in, in the second season. And I think the show is questioning whether that is the right move, right? Bringing in Dr. Sharon was certainly a function of that. And I think the show is trying to argue, you can't do it alone. And it is actually kind of cruel to ask people to deal with whatever they're dealing with on their own. It's got to be a team effort. Right. Dr. Sharon Fieldstone, played by Sarah Niles, is the sort of dilemma of season two. 
she's a sports psychologist who comes in, talks to the players for like 10 minutes and they all feel better, right? Like you know, <laughs> she has this sort of like curative effect immediately. But Ted is very frightened of her from minute one and kind of launches like just a barrage of his folksiness at her as he did in season one with every gruff character he met. She's not exactly gruff, but she's, you know, cool. Ted skeptic. Yeah, she's skeptical. <laughs> I found Dr. Fieldstone so interesting because it kind of makes me feel slightly differently about Ted because she, when he meets her, is his opposite. Like she's the yin to his yang. He's garrulous and says way too much and is way too friendly and is this white American man. And, and she is a very reticent, <laughs> formal um, black English woman. Um, and she uh, keeps herself to herself and gives none of her feelings away and is as stiff and intimidating as he is like, overly charming. And I think that completely freaks Ted out. And it's only when she's kind of taken off her pedestal a bit later in the season when she has her bike accident and he visits right. her home and sees that possibly she drinks too much that he is able to connect with her. And then you realize that actually they're more similar than the show has presented them as being in terms of the, they each have their defense mechanisms and, and they use those things to deal with trauma. But I found it, I found it really interesting about Ted that he was much more able to respond to her only when she had been sort of humanized in that She's fashion. vulnerable, right. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you guys about Ted, because when we think about where he comes from, the show never really gets into his politics, like the politics that he presumably would have as, you know, a sports coach and a white man coming from Kansas. It's mentioned one time that his favorite book is Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, but not for reasons that you think, he says. <laughs> he just loves those monologues. Great monologues. It makes no sense that Ted Lasso would like The Fountainhead. He is a yeah. man who values the collective. Like, it is not really something he would gravitate to, I wouldn't think. But right, I but I think it's one of those things where, you know, Ted Lasso is very fond of like a cutesy pun at the end of a, an a artistic opinion, right? He's like, I love the fountainhead because I just love, you know, to head over to the fountain. Like, right? It's always like, some kind of, and you're like, oh, there he goes. We're going to call this drill the exorcist because it's all about controlling possession. Megan, do, do you think that Ted strives to be an apolitical person or do you think the show is just kind of like, well, let's not get into it? Probably more of the latter. I think the show probably recognizes that it's best to sort of keep the specifics out. I mean, I think to me, the show feels cartoonish. Like if this character could simply not exist in real life, you know, he just couldn't quite be this type of person, which is why I love him so much as a fiction, right? Because then once you sort of give yourself over to that, I think I find myself just saying, it doesn't make sense, but that's fine. You know, he doesn't live in strictly our world and that's okay, you know? I believe in communism. Rom communism, that is. The worldview... That reminds us that romantic comedies with folks like Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, or uh, Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant, if all those attractive people with their amazing apartments and interesting jobs, usually in some creative field, can go through some lighthearted struggles and still end up happy, then so can we. One thing, Sophie, that the sort of references make me think of is like, for the first season, I loved all of the references. And it actually felt mm. like something that made the show kind of live its values almost in the sense of being inclusive and sort of being more than it would seem at first. That, you know, it's it's sort of about this one story, but it's also about, like, all of pop culture in some ways. And, you know, yeah. you never know what kind of reference you're going to get. And I love that. And, you know, even if you didn't get all of them, which I'm sure I didn't, you know, you would get another one and it's fine. And it wasn't a big deal if you didn't get it because it's still a great show. And I would love to know what you guys think about this because for me in the second season, the references uh, seem much more um, specific and a little bit like 
excluding like the Coach Beard episode, which was like one kind of drawn out reference, um, um, to, you know, to Scorsese, Scorsese to, yeah, hours, exactly, yeah. exactly. And if you don't happen to be familiar with that film, you're going to be pretty confused, you know, and it just felt like, it felt a little bit aggressive to me, and it felt like this was the show not trying to to bring its viewers in, but to challenge them in a way that almost felt antagonistic to me. But I don't know if you guys felt the same about that. I, I, the show has an unfathomable challenge. I, I can't, you know, in trying to do a second season. That, that's the first thing. It's the, the biggest challenge to try and replicate what people loved about something that they didn't see coming, right? So, like, mm-hmm. like are mm-hmm. they sort of doubling down on the references or maximizing them to try and kind of, like, uh, you know, supercharge that thing that people kind of enjoyed about season? I don't know. Or are they kind of emboldened by, like, oh, Ted Lasso is a success, what have you guys always wanted to do? Like, and you know, someone in the, I don't know who wrote the coach beard <laughs> episode. Let me look it up. But like, someone's like, you know, I've always wanted to do an after hours parody. Like, you know, uh, Brett Goldstein wrote that episode with Joe Kelly, okay. like to who plays yeah. Brett Goldstein plays Roy Kent. Um, you know, so maybe that's what it is where it's kind of like, look guys, we're a hit. Like, you know, let's yeah. see how niche we can take it and still sort of hold on to the audience. One of the things that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way about this season, and I completely empathize with sort of the the broad structural challenge that was presented to these writers who had this like massive success from the first season. But I think it just felt a little bit like throwing spaghetti at the wall and, you know, masculinity, fatherhood, like just so many different things happening, trauma. And I think because the topics are so serious, I would have loved to have seen the show like just delve deeply into those ideas. And instead, it just felt kind of frenetic and at times chaotic. And I think also there was something about the second season to me that, I mean, it moved so deeply away from the tone of the first season just in terms of sort of celebrating kindness, community, et cetera, that there was something to me that suggested that the show was almost embarrassed that that had become the discourse about it, that like, you know, kindness was not enough. It needed to do, it was like, well, we don't, that's not all we are. We're so much more. We're going to, you know, here, we're going to talk about trauma and we're going to, you know, all these things. And that's great to do to complicate things. But I also feel like, I don't know, it'd be nice if kindness were enough, right? Like that's a very complicated idea that I think deserves a really complicated treatment. And the fact that the show seemed a little bit embarrassed about that, it was a little bit of a bummer for me. I've seen... In interviews, Snake has just repeated this line a lot that like this season is the Empire Strikes Back season. I think mm-hmm. they sort of vaguely talked about Ted Lasso as maybe just being a three season show, like maybe yep. it'll conclude next season. And so this is the kind of, you know, middle chapter where the outer conflicts have been resolved. And so now the inner conflicts come out, and that would make uh, Dr. Sharon the sort of Yoda figure who has to like bring Ted into the cave and have him face his demons and, you know, emerge stronger and all that. And that's fine. But, you know, The Empire Strikes Back does still have lightsaber battles and uh, (laughs) space wars, wars in stars. And it's not like Ted Lasso is completely, it, it does still have football footage. I do also wonder if the show will be able to switch back into mm-hmm. a more sporty narrative if that's what it's planning. Well, they kind I, of set it up yeah. at the end of season one, didn't they? You know, so second season is going to be about getting back into the Premier League and then the third, if it happens, will be about winning the Premiership. Like that was what right, which, Rebecca said to is, Ted. She's, 
completely <laughs> ludicrous as anyone any British football fan would know, but it doesn't matter. I Lester. don't mind that. Let me I'm, give you I know Lester, Lester is Lester. But they but well then we would need a plot line where the, the team is suddenly bought by, you know, oil oligarchs or some other I- incredibly which is all that happens in Premier League football now, but that's it's a separate rant. It's not important. <laughs> I do think that there's a way that the show is like, and I'm not sure how intentional this is on its part, but like the show itself seems very ambivalent about just the notion of winning, you know, just mm. in the same way Ted is. He can't sort of decide whether he wants to win or not, whether, you know, the teammates should want to win or not, that kind of thing. And it feels like the show does sort of reflect that. It doesn't really want to show, you know, winning in the in the very sort of brute, you know, economic sense of like really conveying how wealthy often these players are. It doesn't, you know, it just doesn't really want to have a conversation on those terms, which feels very apt given Ted's character. Right. I mean, Ted is right. Is so, he feels enlightened in this way where he's not that worried about winning. But yeah, there's an economic proposition at work. Winning is kind of crucial. Like, obviously, yes, this team will exist whether or not it wins. Although in Britain, there is the threat of relegation to encourage teams to win that is sort of part of the point right you know you will actually lose revenue you're going to drop to a lower league all that stuff but yeah sports at the end of the day you 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 have to triumph and someone is going to be sad like that that is unfortunately how it goes all the time that is an unsolvable problem ted cannot make everyone happy and so that being the conflict of season two is nominally very interesting to me and I don't mind the show trying to dig into that. I think I've been a little confused or just kind of displaced by then. It's sort of like, well, actually, Ted's got all this personal stuff that he has to delve through. That's fine. That's truthful. Obviously, people have things within themselves that they have to delve through. But it would almost be more interesting if if it still had like a foot in sports and it doesn't really. And maybe that's yeah. what I've been kind of baffled by. But you know, what? I still find the show very easy to watch i don't like mm-hmm. dread love- putting on ted lasso yeah. yeah i love the greek chorus in the pub so much like the three oh, fans so who are good. sitting yeah. there responding to everything and they are kind mm-hmm. of a reminder like you said david of, of actually the stakes of <laughs> the stakes of sports for fans right because ted lasso sucks no offense ted oh all good man you jeremy and paul have been refreshingly candid about y'all's feelings pretty cool premier league gaffer knows our names all right shut up you twats and then you have um, the barmaid or the pub owner who's like Pat Butcher and EastEnders and she's stalling out wisdom. And um, <laughs> like there are all these things about the show that are just wonderful, these details. I think every, for some reason, every time we see Ted in the pub, he's just eating a cottage pie. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, um, like there's, it, there's so much to love about it, but but it is not quite perfect. And I, I just want it to get there for selfish reasons. <laughs> it's tough to demand perfection in a sitcoms because... I know this is a, it's a sort of high-end sitcom. It's a prestige sitcom because it's got like a lot of ongoing plotting and all that. But, you know, at the end of the day, these shows are primarily here to give us relief and make us laugh and make us feel good on a Friday night after a long week. And, you know, Bill Lawrence, who's the guy who created the show along with Stakus and his writing partners, you know, he's the guy behind like Cougar Town and Scrubs and Spin City and these shows that especially like Cougar Town, you know, these shows were often hangout shows. It was about friends, Mm -hmm. you know, and the sort of lovely dynamics between them. It was not about, you know, trying to unpack every issue in American culture, like, (laughs) you know, like, you know, sort of understand who is, what is it to be a man in 21st century America? You know, like it's not, 
it's tough to demand it all of our of our shows, but I do feel like people demand a lot out of Ted Lasso because the first season was such a knockout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too that the first season was so 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 good at threading the needle between sort of the minute and the macro, and you know, like yeah, yeah it was a sitcom like so like thoroughly contained and so thoroughly itself, and yet it was I think hinting at those broader questions, but it wasn't like pounding you over the head with them, right? And this season felt much more didactic and it just felt like trying to be prestige in a way that felt sort of contrary to the mission. Yeah, totally. And the episodes are getting longer and they're getting baggier. I know, it's sort of prestige TV-itis. Yeah, it is a bit because I have a a TV critic friend who gets the screeners or whatever and she'll text me being like, oh, uh, this week's Ted Lasso is a big one. And I'm like, another one? Another big one? (laughs) Can we have a smaller one? (laughs) I'm a little yeah. I'm a little exhausted by right, you know, <laughs> it's another forty five minute oh, this is an epic. Like Gilgamesh yeah. is on the pitch. Why? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> but like to to sort of focus on what we do like about the show. Like what are some of your favorite moments, some of your favorite characters from the show? I'm so partial to Roy Kent. I yeah, know I that's really unoriginal too, at right. this point. Everyone will just agree, but he is such a delight. Uh, but it is interesting too because you're watching this show that ostensibly you could watch this show with kids except for the fact that there is a swear word every three seconds. <laughs> there are the moments like when Roy starts his Sky Sports commentary gig and he just can't stop swearing. Roy Kent, ex-Chelsea legend, joins us. Welcome, Roy. Hmm. Right, um, what did you think? Did your former club play well? No. I thought they played like shit. <laughs> Uh, our apologies to the viewing audience, Roy Kent, with some salty language. The way that it became kind of a, a meta running joke, where then whenever anyone swore on TV, it would be, oh, sorry for the fruity language. Yeah. I, I did like that. that became, I think they used it like 20 times. And the fruity I actually justice. thought it was delightful. It was a ton, but it was, I thought it was good. <laughs> but yeah, I, too, am a Roy funny. partisan. I think he's such a good character. So well acted. I love especially the relationship with Phoebe. I just think it's lovely. And I, I mean, again, talk about a character who is like so much more than he seems, but not in a treacly way, right? Just in a very like... Like, charming way. Look, most adults think kids need to be constantly entertained. It's bullshit. I didn't need a fucking parade every day growing up, did you? Truth is, they just want to feel like they're part of our lives. Mm. Little idiots. What's this? Oi, Phoebe, do you want to come to my podiatrist appointment later? Yes, please. Roy Kent, I think, is the sort of undeniable. He's this homage to Roy Keane, who I'm sure, Sophie, you grew up with you know, mm-hmm. knowing Roy Keane as much as I, I. I hated Roy Keane. I'm an Arsenal fan. He was the sort of <laughs> the great terror of much of my football youth. But he had this sort of brute force way with the truth. He's famous for this line where he referred to people in the stands these days eating what he called prawn sandwiches, like shrimp sandwiches, <laughs> uh, which was his way of kind of talking about like the gentrification of football fandom in Britain and how, you know, people weren't as, you know, hardcore anymore. And that's that kind of thing that Roy Kent, can, like that way where he will say something where you're like, like, Roy, like dial it back a little bit, but he is sort of getting at something in this sort of blunt force way that you kind of can't dismiss. Uh, it's the appeal of him, right? Yeah, my other favorite thing about him is when someone asks him to do something and he just says, now. Now. (laughs) (laughs) And then grabs. I actually did love the rom-com episode, just the end of it where Roy was like the romantic hero coming back not to a person he loves, but a sport he loves and a team he loves. Hello, coach. Really glad you decided. Shut up. Just shut up. You had me a coach. 
It was cheesy, but I I did really love that because especially that character being Roy, you know, it just felt so special to see him being vulnerable and emotionally honest. I want to say a note of praise for Coach Beard too, because I just think he's really subtle and fascinating. His relationship with Jane Payne. What is that? What is Jane? Why is she? He accidentally drinks mushroom tea at her house and then coaches (laughs) the next day. Like I find Beard so, I mean, he's absolutely like the quiet man to lasso's overbearing garrulousness, but he, (laughs) he's not overdone in the way that so many of the characters sometimes can be. Like you just have questions about him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I love every scene that he's in. I think Brendan Hunt plays him so well. Coach, tell these boys what the first rule of my fight club is. No fight club! No fight club. I love him. The only problem I have almost is the more we learn... It's not like I'd start to dislike Coach Beard, but I almost just want him to be completely inscrutable. Mm. Like, Mm. I, I, I almost love the idea of his entire home life personal life being this mystery to even his closest friends and then you ask you like hey uh, like coach beard did you sleep last night and he just shakes his head and you're like what does that mean you know like, what the, what's coach beard doing um i understand the impulse to finally give him an episode and it's like yes coach beard lives a, a life of constant chaos behind his sort of taciturn you know that's fine but uh but this is the this is the complaint that we're all having. And it's this is an unavoidable, you know, we're, we're like, ah, uh, you know, the more we learn, we almost kind of just we're longing for the old days. It's tough for a show to continue and to find new drama and to find new tension. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so I think the show is maybe getting a bit of an unfair shake on that front where it is trying to expand in, in surprising directions. And we are already sort of like, well, we like the first season. It's like, well, you know, you can always go back and watch the first season if you like it so much. But, you know, I don't let know. the show try I... something different. I don't know. To, to talk in defense of the naysayers, I think it's just a framing problem. I think a lot mm-hmm. of what the show is doing now could be done better if it, if it was just more proportional. Like if, if there was still kind of a sports narrative underneath things that made sense, if certain things weren't like picked up and then discarded in a second. And if there was just like slightly better structure to the season, I think, I think it would be a big, big, big improvement. And I don't think it's nitpicking necessarily or like unnecessarily picking at a show that is otherwise very good and very entertaining. Yeah, totally. It comes from a place of love. (laughs) (laughs) And it does feel a little bit like kind of, you know, second novel syndrome applied to television, you know, where there is just, we had this fairly unexpected success. Like we want to sort of capitalize on it. We want to use our platform perhaps was part of the thinking, you know, and that's a very admirable impulse, but a platform can be powerful because it's contained, you know? I still enjoyed watching it. I just, I wish it could have been just a little bit more, a little bit better. Just a tiny bit fuller formed, I think. Would, would, well, you know, we're, yeah. we are recording this having not seen the one episode left. And so obviously there could be, I mean, a thing that I haven't mentioned it, but yeah, one of my favorite parts of season one, right, is that it's got the major league plot. Rebecca's trying to sabotage Ted. That's the inner conflict. And when it all comes to a head, I don't know how you guys feel, but I often dread those parts of rom-coms, sitcoms, all kinds of things where the lie has to be exposed, exposed. and then they <laughs> have to be mad at each other and it has to be worked through. And then eventually you're just sort of like looking at your watch because you know it's going to get figured out. Ted, I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted this team to lose. I wanted you to fail. Then I sabotaged you every chance I've had. And instead, Rebecca reveals what she's done. Ted is like, 
well, I understand that. I've been in your situation. <laughs> I've been sad about, you know, he's a divorced man. I've been sad. I understand how it makes you feel. I totally forgive you. I came clean to Ted. I told him everything. Oh, how did that go? You know what the little shit did? He forgave me. Fucking awesome. I know. There's a lot of shows where if you tried that, it just wouldn't work, right? Because the audience would be like, well, I don't buy that. He would be mad at her. But because mm-hmm. the show's done all the great character work, it makes that moment feel very plausible where you're like, yeah, that is how Ted would behave. And that is such a surprise and exemplifies what was so surprising about season one. Can season two have a moment like that? Like, am I, mm-hmm. is there going to be something that kind of shuts my trap a little bit where I'm like, well, you know what? They laid the groundwork and it's all come together kind of beautifully. It's not impossible, but I'm like what you're saying, Megan, like I don't know what the core premise of this season is in the same way. So I'm not sure what it is I'm looking for on that front. Like, you know, right. What sort of not I need undone or something. Yeah. That's a really good point. I, yeah, I don't either. And I'm trying to imagine like what, I mean, what I would personally like, (laughs) I will say is some kind of redemption for Nate because to watch his kind of red pilling his his descent into anti-heroism, you know, again, it's it's one I think that also sort of captures what felt a little bit off to me about this season was just it, it was such a swing from the Nate of the first season and from that arc that it just it didn't seem plausible. And you know, I know the idea is fame is corrupting and there was like a didactic message undergirding that descent, but it just felt like it was more the didactic and less the character and that was what seemed a bummer. And that seemed kind of like a metaphor for the season to some extent. Yeah. And also the point of Ted is that everyone around him gets better, not worse. But Mm -hmm. here you have this character who is going into the dark side because he keeps searching for his name on Twitter. And let that be a lesson for us all, really. (laughs) Don't do that. No one should ever do that. Never read the comments, Ted. No good can come of it. Have a nice suit and be happy. It's fine. Sophie, you're in Britain, Sophie. What do Brits think of this show? Because when it debuted, I was like, British people must hate this show. Love it. As someone who grew up in Britain, that's very surprising. They absolutely love it. The Guardian loves it. All the reviews I've read have loved it. I watched it with my mom last night, who, spoiler, is English. She loved it. It does get England right, which, you know, makes sense because there's English people on the writing team. Brett Goldstein's British. Um, And you and I, David, were were talking the other day when you argued that the the pub is too clean. And actually, I would say in in defense of British pubs, they are very clean now. (laughs) And Richmond, I mean, (laughs) Richmond is really like that sparkly. (laughs) That did shock me. It's a very clean borough. Right. (laughs) I think people love it. I think they love the idea of Americans coming to England and being put in their place, which to a certain extent Ted is, but also the fact that, you know, you give and you take, and Ted obviously has a a lot to give. I will say the one thing that the the show doesn't get into, again, because it's a comedy, but it has been getting into serious issues in season two, is there is a lot of toxicity around soccer fandom. And... The show kind of gets at that a little bit. I mean, as someone who grew up in Britain and was an American who had moved to Britain, it sort of blew my mind how much it was like, yeah, well, you know, Millwall fans, they're always fighting. And, you know, like that sort of thing where it was like, well, that's just sort of part of it. Yeah. And it's not like American sports fans don't cause trouble, is it? But but there is this sort of... uh, there's a particular violence ingrained in the yeah, culture yeah. of soccer that 
the show gets at a little bit, I think, when you see Jamie's dad more than anything. Um, the tribal aspect to it, the massive investment in whether a team wins or loses, um, that particularly in this season has been underplayed a lot, I think. It's true. And and it's something that it's tough for Ted Lasso, obviously, to delve deep into because it is not set in that frightening a world, right? But um, yeah, I mean, I have so many stories. As an Arsenal fan, I, I love my team, but it's very strange because Arsenal's rivals are spurs and there's a lot of sort of nastiness bound up in that and i don't know britain britain's weird but you know britain's weird sophie that's the whole thing it is. There's, <laughs> the emotions are uh, often expressed in very specific ways and maybe that's why ted lasso is a sort of oddly good avatar for things because he's also someone who uh, can only express his emotions in very specific kind of bottled ways it's just that He's an American optimist versus, you know, whatever, the typical British pessimist. They're similar, but they're different. And uh, the show, I think, lives in that space, is enthusiastic, I think, about. has a deep sort of love in its heart for both cultures, if that makes sense. Except for the tea. <laughs> yes, except for the tea. Ted will have no stock in tea. I do love that he, ha- he hates tea. I do, too. Yeah. I always figured that tea was just going to taste like hot brown water. And you know what? I was right. Yeah, it's horrible. No, thank you. Welcome to England. As we're sort of, you know, wrapping up here, I just want to go back to that question Megan raised about the sort of merits of American optimism and the limits of it. Like, what is, uh, after two, basically two seasons, where do you think the show's landing there, Megan? I, I do like that it has complicated very successfully the you know treatment of optimism from season one, which was sort of endorsing this kind of bright-eyed, believe, faith-based approach toward you know the world, basically. And I think for those of us living in <laughs> the non-fictional world, that can tip, I think, over into kind of willful Pollyannaism, where you know I think there's a level at which it's always the case, but especially right now, you know, if you're not a little bit angry, if you're not a little bit pessimistic, you're probably not paying attention. So I think that, you know, the second season is sort of acknowledging that and acknowledging that, like, you know, we're not going to get through any of the many problems that face us with sort of, you know, hopeful hashtags and nice little aphorisms and that kind of thing. Like, it's going to take very much more. Yeah, I think Doreen St. Felix in her review of the second season for The New Yorker compared Ted's believe slogan to Barack Obama's hope in that they're nice and they make people feel good and it's great, but they're not, they're just not enough by themselves, especially not when they're standing up against a relentless onslaught of um, weaponized negativity and power. I mean, you need other things too. You need introspection, you need realism, you need, I don't know, all kinds of things that Ted, I guess, doesn't have or doesn't yet. Maybe that's the theme of season three. But I think the second season, the thing that it has done that's really interesting is sort of challenge that idea that simple belief, simple optimism, simple hope and faith will ever be enough. Before we wrap up, let's do a recommendation. And on the Ted Lasso theme, do you guys have favorite sports movies or shows? Obviously, I'm sure, you know, everyone would mention Friday Night Lights. That's sort of like (laughs) the sports show of our generation. But what else? I'm getting Friday Night Lights out of the way. I have to say that I love Field of Dreams. Um, yeah, it rules. That's a great yes. one. Totally. I think because there isn't actually that much sport going on to confuse me or stress me out. It's just, you know, again, about fathers and legacies and Kevin Costner's so handsome. And it's just a great, slightly confusing movie. Some people diss it as treacly or maudlin or whatever. And I, I, I can't stand that 
that opinion. Yeah, I hate those people. I, I also think yeah. baseball movies should be maudlin. Like, it's such a, yes. you know, it's such a nostalgic thing. You know, it, it's such an American thing. And I think Free of the Dreams has a good kind of, like, it's kind of jabs at the boomers while also indulging them. Like, you know, it's... I, I James L. Jones is Salinger-esque character. Mm-hmm. And I, I defy you not to cry or get goosebumps when Kevin yeah. Costner realizes that his father has come to play baseball with him. Totally. I'm almost crying now. Yeah. <laughs> they built Megan, it and we came. <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually, the one I was going to mention is also a trickly lovely baseball movie, which is A League of Their Own. I recently Aww. rewatched that, and I was sobbing by the end. I mean, it's just, it's got everything. It's got everything you would want. It's so good. So Madonna. Good. Madonna. That's a great Totally. Movie. Rosie O'Donnell. Like, everyone. Tom Hanks. Great. Yep. Yeah. I know there's no crying in baseball, but when I watched it, <laughs> I was definitely crying. But yeah, that's right. Tom Hanks in that is more, he's coming in as the classic hard-ass coach who's got to figure it out. But I like that part of the arc of that you know, movie is him actually having to f- soften himself to adapt, which I, which I think is great. That's a great movie. Yeah, I mean, Hoosiers is my favorite sports movie, but that mm-hmm. and I brought it up already because Ted Lasso season one is Hoosiers. You know, all that sort of footage of like cornfields and, you know, Midwestern barns and it's like five in the morning and it's cold and like, <laughs> I, I, I need my sports movies to capture the weird atmosphere that feeling of being an athlete beyond like the bright lights and the big stardom mm. and all that. Anyway, Ted Lasso. It's, it, it, it will be a, a canonical piece of sports TV without a doubt. That does it for this show. This episode of the review was produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez and Catherine Wells. Our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm David Sims. Thanks to my co-hosts, Sophie Gilbert and Megan Garber. Thank you, David. Thank you. Bye, Sophie. Bye, Megan. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. We need a sign-off. We need some kind of like... <laughs> and that's been the review. <laughs>